0: The Old Testament reading today is from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, and it can be found on page 174 in your pew Bible. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, like me from among your own people. You shall heed such a prophet. This is what you requested of the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly when you said if i hear the voice of the lord my god any more or ever again see this great fire i will die then the lord replied to me they are right in what they have said i will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people i will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them Everything that I command. Anyone who does not heed the words that the prophet shall speak in my name, I myself will hold accountable. But any prophet who speaks in the name of other gods or presumes to speak in my name a word that I have not commanded the prophet to speak, that prophet shall die. The New Testament lesson is from the book of mark chapter one verses twenty one through twenty eight and it can be found on page nine ten in your pew Bible they went they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching for he taught And the unclean spirit, convulsing and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. The word of the Lord.
1: Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts find acceptance in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The lectionary keeps us in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark today. Uh, Talked a little about this last week and even hinted at it the week before, before that, but Mark's a fascinating gospel. Each of the gospels has its own unique perspective on the life and ministry of Jesus. But it's clear in Mark that there's an urgency uh, to the ministry of Jesus, he comes preaching, "The kingdom is near. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel." Uh, only thirteen verses are used by Mark in do- dealing with all of those matters that the Synoptics deal with at some length, like the angelic announcement of the coming birth, the life of John the Baptist, and his parents. The baptism of Jesus in the Jordan River, the wilderness experience over 40 days. All of that is mentioned briefly, or much of it is mentioned, but it's, uh, Mark doesn't dwell on it. Because he wants to get to the initiation of this kingdom work and the, how it's incumbent upon everyone whom the kingdom comes near to make a decision. Who is this Jesus? And depending on how you answer that question, what are you going to do about it? That's the issue in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We looked last week at the calling of the first four disciples, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, and marveled at how immediately they just left their family, their vocation, and followed Jesus, according to Mark. There is, I repeat, an urgency about all of this. The fact that these disciples, these fishermen, immediately respond is a clue. The word "euthus" in the Greek is used... Twice in the calling of the fishermen, immediately they get up and go, set of both bro- sets of brothers. We find it twice in our lesson today. This word, youth, sometimes translated just then or at once or immediately, but you can just feel the fast paced action taking place here. In fact, that word is used 10 times in the first chapter of Mark alone. So, who is this Jesus? It's urgent, you make a decision. About how he's going to impact your life. Now when we looked at the beginning of uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. According to Luke on our first Sunday together. That was a bit different. Because Luke has him. It doesn't mention what goes on in Capernaum. That we hear about in Mark 1. But what we do read about there. Is in Nazareth they said. They said do here in your hometown. What we've heard that you did in Capernaum. So that's probably the chronology we should go with. His ministry began in Capernaum. It moved on to his hometown of Nazareth. But wherever he went, his fame was spreading. He was drawing crowds. He was popular. Uh, And people have to make a response. And the interesting thing is that they either respond immediately in affirmation and in solidarity with Jesus. They're willing to be his companion, his co-workers. Or else they defy him. Even want to attack him so much as try to take his life there in Nazareth. So I want to ask you this morning what was it about Jesus that drew people to him and continues to draw people to him? Was it his appearance? I'm sure we've all wondered what did Jesus look like, really? And what kind of impact did that have on his ministry? Now, I doubt it was his appearance. Isaiah, in one of the servant songs, says, uh, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. So it probably wasn't His appearance that drew people to Him. A popular expression these days is the it factor. I hear it often. You know, here's a basketball player and the announcer will say, Well, that guy just has that it factor. He stands out from the crowd. I've heard it said of politicians, of entertainers and actors. Certain people have that It factor, where they kind of stand out from the crowd. It's hard to define or to describe, but other people recognize when someone else has it. Some people call this charisma, an interesting word too. It comes from the Greek word charis, which means a talent or a gift conferred by God upon a person. But in our time, the word charisma has come to mean that gift of leadership, of power or charm or authority that can be elusive and exclusive, and has the ability to inspire and motivate and influence other people. Now what it was that Jesus had, according to Mark, he's clear about it, is his authority. It's mentioned twice today. His teaching, the people are astounded at his authority in teaching. And when he performs the miracle of delivering the man from the demon. They said, what is this, a new authority? They're amazed by what they see. Mark nails it. It was the authority of Jesus that makes him stand out and gives him the power and the ability to demand a response to what he's saying and doing. In preparing this message, I did a study of all the times in the Gospels where the word authority is used. And it is clear if you do that, that that was a central issue, a major issue in the life and ministry of Jesus. What is this authority and where does it come from? Is it from God? Is it from Satan? Interestingly enough, the common people recognize he has this authority and are subject to it. The demons recognize it. They know who Jesus is. The ones that really resist this authority are the religious leaders of the time. Mark tells us that when Jesus began his ministry in Capernaum, he went to the synagogue and begins his teaching and his miraculous work there. And quickly this issue of authority emerges. Verse 22. The people were astounded. What was it about his teaching that astounded the people? Was it what he said? I think it was primarily what he said, but it was also how he said it. He taught differently than other rabbis or scribes. The scribes are mentioned here. He's not like these other scribes. Why isn't he? Because so far as we know, Jesus was never in the business of quoting authorities. And that's how teaching took place in the synagogue. A rabbi would get up and he'd read a passage of scripture and he says, As Rabbi Hillel has said, or as Rabbi Shammai has said. So far as we know, at least, from what's recorded in the gospel, Jesus never does this. He teaches as one who has authority in and of himself. He doesn't need to quote other authorities to make a point. In fact, he even goes so far as to question and challenge many accepted authorities of his day. How many times did he say, you have heard that it was said, quoting an Old Testament passage, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and gives a brand new interpretation on what that means. Now that is either the height of presumption to do that, or else it is the embodiment of a greater truth from a higher authority. But the deci- the listeners, the observers, are the ones who have to decide whether this authority is legitimate, and whether they will submit to it. When I first began preaching more than 40 years ago now, I know I often, in fact consistently, was quoting other people, what they said. Now, who I quoted depended on the audience that I was addressing. That's something all speakers do, preachers as well. But uh, maybe this was born of my lack of assurance in my own teaching or preaching. Maybe it was a sense of personal inadequacy but I know, in fact I've looked back over some of my old sermons and I'm amazed at how often I did that and people had the grace to sit there and listen to it often but anyway um, but Jesus is never quoting these sources so far as we know it's almost as if he's graduated from having to quote a source to being a source he doesn't even just teach the truth, there's something about this man that is the truth the way the truth and the life. Now when I was uh, preaching, if I had been preaching to my seminary classmates or the professors in a chapel service, I would more likely quote Tillich or Bonhoeffer or Kierkegaard or Niebuhr or one of these uh, philosophical theologians to impress my listeners. If I were preaching to Presbyterians in the rural church I served, I would often quote Calvin. They like that. If I was preaching in a Methodist church, I'd quote Wesley. That went over big in a Methodist church or, Baptists like to hear from Billy Graham, that kind of thing. When I was in Virginia, I would quote Thomas Jefferson. All Virginians love Thomas Jefferson. And in Mississippi, when I was there, when I grew up there, and when I went back there later to serve a church, I would quote a Mississippi writer like William Faulkner or Eudora Welty or Stephen Ambrose or John Grisham or Willie Campbell or Willie Morris or Shelby Foote or Greg Isles or William Alexander or Walker Percy or Alice Walker. (laughs) or Tennessee Williams, or Laura Brown, or Richard Wright, or Kathy Stock. You see, Mississippi is woefully inadequate in everything defined, refined culture wants, except for their literary figures and their musicians. They do a pretty good job there, despite uh, other things in Mississippi. I had a parishioner say to me one time, You know, Danny, I'm not so much interested in what Niebuhr or Calvin says. I'd like to know what Danny Massey says. And I thought, well, that's quite a compliment that he's putting me on that level, uh, that he wants to know my opinion. Only later that afternoon did I realize that wasn't a compliment. That was a criticism. What he was saying is, why are you hiding behind these other folks? What do you really think about what you're teaching or doing? So Jesus was one who had authority in and of himself. He didn't need to quote others. And the common people, often the non-religious people, Recognized his authority. And his authority was confirmed by his mighty deeds, this cleansing of the man with, possessed by the demonic. The people recognize in this action which validates his teaching that he has command even over the evil forces of this world. What is this, they say? A new teaching with authority. With authority. Now, there's such a thing as direct authority and derived authority. If you leave church this morning and you drive through the stop sign down there and there's a policeman on the corner, he's likely to give you a ticket. Not because he's better than you, not because he knows more than you, but because he's been authorized to do that. His badge and his uniform are a symbol of that authority that's been conferred on him by someone else. Frequently when we are performing a marriage ceremony, the minister will say at the end of the service, by the authority committed unto me, I pronounce you husband and wife. I can't make people husband and wife. But since the state and the church have authorized me to perform this function, then I can announce that they are married. But that is a derived authority. Jesus' authority was not derived. It was innate. And he deals with it. It comes up time and time again, as as I said. And it is the religious figures more often than not that are unwilling to recognize it or submit to it. There's one occasion in Mark 11, and this is depicted on the front of your bulletin. I chose that artwork by Tiso When Jesus visits the temple, uh, and let me just read you this, this account. Again, they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question. Answer me, and then I will tell you the Authority by which I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? Answer me. They argued with one another privately. If we say he was, from, it was from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say that it is of human origin, because they were afraid of the crowd, because all regarded John as a prophet, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Well, neither will I tell you by what authority. I am doing these things. And of course, there was that occasion when some attributed his authority to Satan. He's only doing this because the evil one is in him. And Jesus reveals the absurdity of that argument, saying, well, why would Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make sense. No. Whatever authority I have does not come from Satan. And he closes that by saying, but if by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come near you. The kingdom of God has come near you. The clearest perceptions of Jesus' authority in the gospels again is found within the response of the common folk or even the foreigners to Jesus. There's a Roman centurion on one occasion, according to Matthew 8, and he has a paralyzed servant. So he's heard about this Jesus, impressed by what he's heard, and so he sends word to Jesus uh, to heal his servant. And Jesus agrees. He says, I will will go and and see the servant and, and heal him. And the centurion sends word back, oh, no, no, you don't have to come. I'm not worthy for you to come in my house. You just give the order. He said, I'm a man of authority. And I say to this person, go, and he goes. I say to this person, go, and he goes. So you can just give the word, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus does that. And the servant is healed. And Jesus said, as a result of that experience, I haven't found this kind of faith in all of Israel. That was a Roman centurion who recognized and submitted to Jesus' authority. There's at least one time in the Gospels, in the presence of his disciples, where Jesus directly acknowledges and claims divine authority. And it's a passage that we all know well. It was after his crucifixion. It was after his resurrection. It was immediately prior to his ascension. He gathers his disciples like you and me, and he says to them and to us, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you always. What was true for listeners and observers of Jesus in the first century is no different from those of us who listen and observe today. Jesus doesn't force us to surrender to or to recognize his authority, but he invites us to do so. And so I would close by asking, does Jesus exercise authority in your life? I don't mean in your church life. I don't mean in one hour in which you're sitting on the pews here. But is he the authority in every aspect of your life? Because he's not content to be just in part of your life. Is he exercising authority in your financial life? How you respond in your matters of stewardship will probably indicate that. Is Jesus exercising authority in your marriage? In your family? What about in your political life? Do your political views reflect your understanding of the gospel? What about your social life? Your vocational life? Or, as some do, do you call uh, Jesus your Savior, but love Him not? Do you call Him your teacher, but don't heed His instruction? Do you call Him your friend, but you don't trust Him? Do you call Him Lord, but refuse to be obedient? You know, everybody wants Jesus to be their Savior. But some who want Jesus as their Savior are not willing to let him be their Lord. And if you're a Christian, you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. That means someone else is in control of what you do and how you live and what you say. If Jesus exists in our lives as one having authority, then surely this is something that demands a decision and a response. In every area of our living, because there is not a day that passes in all probability when each of us doesn't have to decide what authority am I going to be subject to here, and how I live my life, and how I relate to other people. Let us pray that Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority in the lives of each of us and in this church that we love. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you alone have the grace to invite us and the authority to claim us as your own. You alone deserve the full measure of our time and energy and resources. Give us the grace to believe and to obey. Give us the courage to take up our own crosses and follow you, even as did those disciples beside the sea so long ago. And in our following, may we discover our greatest joy, our surest strength, our ultimate peace, and our life's clear purpose. Through Christ our Lord.